The following podcast is brought to you by Rare Book School at the University of Virginia and sponsored by the Pine Tree Foundation of New York. To learn more about our programs and how you can support our school, please visit our website at www.rarebookschool.org. Thank you and enjoy. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I'm delighted to welcome you to this, the fourth of Rare Book School's summer lectures. I'm delighted to acknowledge the, the generous hospitality of the Albert and Shirley Small Special Collections staff and the Harrison Institute. I'm also very grateful to the Pine Tree Foundation of New York for their generous sponsorship of our summer series. Ladies and gentlemen, you are in for a treat this evening. Anne-Marie Eze holds a bachelor's degree with honors in classics and an MA in library and information studies with a specialization in manuscript studies and historical bibliography from University College London. She also trained as a librarian at Trinity College Library in Cambridge. Your whole life would have to be downhill from there, I should think. (laughs) She's worked as as an assistant curator as well uh, at the Victoria and Albert Museum, first in the photographs department and um, later on the Medieval and Renaissance Galleries project. As I recently completed her doctorate in the history of art at possibly the best place in the world to do such studies, at the Courtauld Institute of Art in London. And she did a very fascinating uh, uh, American, uh, Arts and Humanities Research Council collaborative doctorate, not only with the Courtauld, but with the Department of Western Manuscripts at the British Library. Where to go from here? Well, of course, she became the first Andrew W. Mellon postdoctoral fellow at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. A star-studded career already for such a young and promising woman. But this does not tell the story. For her greatest line on her CV is that in 2004, Anne-Marie Eze was a James Davis scholar at Rare Book School. (laughs) She is therefore one of our own. Please join me in welcoming Anne-Marie Eze. Wow, thank you for such a generous introduction. Um, I'm delighted to be speaking here. You've given the game away um, because the very first time I came to America was thanks to James Davis Scholarship to study um, Terry Bellinger's book illustration processes to 1900 here at the Rare Book School. Um, I'd like to thank Michael Suarez for inviting me here um, this evening and also the many Rare Book staff who've helped me plan my trip and also this presentation. So... The Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston is renowned for its collection of masterpieces 
of European and American painting, uniquely displayed with decorative arts, furniture, textiles and sculpture in a Venetian palace-style building. Its galleries overlook a breathtaking courtyard filled with light, flowers, fountains and antiquities. This extraordinary place was created and opened to the public in 1903 by Isabella Stewart Gardner, a New Yorker by birth, Boston Brahmin by marriage, cosmopolitan socialite and pioneering art collector and patron. On Gardner's death in 1924, her will bequeathed the museum for the education and enrichment of the public forever, but on the condition that her collection remained as she had arranged it. Paradoxically, the stipulation which protects Gardner's legacy is the reason why her book collection is relatively unknown and why she has been overlooked as one of America's great bibliophiles. For though her library is on permanent display throughout the museum's galleries, apart from a few books and single leaves, its volumes are locked in cases, many of which are covered to protect their bindings from light damage. Visitors are invited to lift the covers, but merely get a glimpse of the treasures inside. So, it will come as a surprise to many that Isabella Stewart Gardner's collecting began with a passion for manuscripts and rare books. She purchased them from 1886, almost a decade before her celebrated art um, acquisitions, and continued to do so right up until her death. In fact, the last object to enter the museum's collection, a month after Gardner passed away, was a book which he had recently requested from its author. Gardner's first foray into collecting rare books and her nascent bibliophilia are recorded in a letter which she wrote in July 1886. Owing to your kindness, I am the happy and proud possessor of several valuable books. Books, I fear, are a most fascinating and dangerous pursuit, but one full of pleasure, and I owe it entirely to you if I have made a good beginning. The recipient of her gratitude was Charles Eliot Norton, Harvard's first professor of art history. Gardner audited Norton's undergraduate course on the history of the fine arts, attended private readings of the Divine Comedy at his home, and belonged to the Dante Society, of which Norton was a founding member and, its, and later its president. In that summer of 1886, Gardner was grateful to Norton for alerting her to the forthcoming sale of the library of Edward Cheney, a British art collector and watercolourist whom the Harvard professor valued as an old acquaintance and a great lover of Italy and of fine books. Norton recommended that Gardner purchase three early printed books, two editions of Dante's Divine Comedy, one printed and illustrated with curious, interesting woodcuts in Brescia in 1487, and the other a pocket-sized edition printed by Aldous and Lucius in Venice in 1502. The third book, also issued from the Aldine Press in 1499, was a copy of the Hypnotomachia Polyphili, an illustrated treatise on Italian art and one of the Renaissance's most mysterious books. Though Mrs. Gardner was heading to the British capital to begin her biennial European tour, she would not arrive in time to attend the sale. Sir Norton suggested that she telegraph Bernard Quaritch, the city's leading rare bookseller, to instruct him to bid on her behalf. Later in life, Gardner liked to recount how her first meeting with Quaritch 
nicknamed the Napoleon of booksellers, got off to a bumpy start. Upon her arrival in London, she went straight to his shop on Piccadilly to collect her books, only to find that Quaritch had not bought the 1487 Brescia Dante. But you got my cable, she asked. Yes, madam, Quaritch replied. Didn't it say buy the Brescia Dante? Yes. Don't you carry out orders that you receive? Yes, madam. Then why didn't you buy it? <laughs> Because, madam, the price was very high, we didn't know you and we had never acted as your agent, and we did not feel justified in paying so much. Thinking that if Quaritch had not known her before, he might as well begin at once, Gardner said, when I give an order, Mr Quaritch, I expect it to be carried out. Unless I set a limit on the price, there is no limit. If you can get the Brescia Dante for me from the person who bought it, very well. Otherwise, I shall never have any further dealings with you. <laughs> a few days later, the coveted book was brought by Corridge to Gardner's Hotel. <laughs> Following this memorable beginning, Gardner went on to form a collection of around 1,500 volumes, dating from the 13th to 20th century and including about 50 in Islamic and Western illumination manuscripts and single leaves, 11 in Cunabula and numerous early printed books, especially Dante editions and examples of celebrated illustration and typography, fine bindings, around 120 children's books, and association copies, including manuscripts, proofs, and first editions of contemporary American literature given to her by authors in her circle, such as Henry James. Many of the books have illustrious provenances. My favourite is a group of Venetian manuscripts owned by a line of British and American men who had made the greatest contribution to the knowledge of Venetian culture in Gardner's day. Edward Cheney, author of the first English language description of um, Venetian illuminated official documents. John Ruskin, the most influential art theorist of the 19th century and author of the book which inspired Gardner to literally bring back the stones of Venice to create her palace in Boston and her old friend Charles Eliot Norton, the father of art history in America. Assured of her place amongst this distinguished company, Gardner signed and dated this frontispiece of the book in handwriting larger than that of her predecessors, with the words, mine now. <laughs> Gardner commissioned her close friend, the painter Joseph Lyndon Smith, to design a bookplate, featuring two signs of a medal, on the obverse is the word angelos, meaning Greek, in meaning messenger in Greek, surrounding a winged foot of Hermes, the messenger of the gods. The foot was drawn after a statue made for Gardner by Augustus St. Gordon's in 1892. On the medal's reverse are the words ex libris Isabella, around the letter Y surmounted by a crowd, crown. This pseudo-royal cipher reflects Gardner's keen interest in heraldry and European monarchs, especially the Stuarts, from whom she claimed descent, and her identification with the Renaissance art patrons and bibliophiles, Isabella the Catholic, Queen of Castile and Leon, and Isabella d'Este, Marquesa of Mantua. To this day, anyone called Isabella is entitled to free admission to the museum. <laughs> Gardner's acquisition of books on her travels abroad from auction houses and dealers and as gifts from relatives, friends and admirers are documented by receipts and letters in the museum's archive. The archive also houses the so-called book enclosures, a collection of photographs, letters and ephemera, 
such as pressed flowers and newspaper clippings, which were removed from gardeners' books for conservation reasons after careful documentation. The enclosures are important for giving an insight into Gardner as a reader and her relationship with books, since she rarely annotated her volumes. In the museum's archive is also a separate personal library comprising Gardner's childhood and family books, travel guides, novels and cookery books, which were formerly in her private apartment above the museum and other residences. The clear distinction between the personal library and museum libraries and the museum library demonstrates that Gardner considered the latter on a par with her art collection with which she displayed it. Gardner placed her most prized volumes in the long gallery, with 15th century Florentine painting and sculpture, autograph letters, medieval metalwork and ecclesiastical vestments and furniture, in this sort of elongated sacristy leading to a chapel dominated by a Gothic stained glass window. This is where you'll find the highlights of the book collection. The Jewel in the Crown is a book of hours, illuminated by Jean Baudichon, official painter to four kings of France. It is dated to around 1515 on the basis of its humanistic script and the Italianate architectural frames enclosing its miniatures, which are characteristics of Baudichon's late work. The book is in excellent condition and only recently entered Baudichon literature. We have a copy of the Divan of Hafiz, or collection of poems by the celebrated Persian lyric poet Hafiz, with delightful illuminations in the style of the Herat school. It is datable by its colophon to the years 1489 and to 1490 in the Western calendar. There is a copy of the 1481 Florence Dante, which is celebrated as the first edition of the humanist scholar Cristoforo Landino's influential commentary on the Divine Comedy, and for its 19 Italia engravings after drawings by Botticelli. Gardner's book is one of only some 20 extant copies to have the complete set of illustrations that have come down to us. An even rarer incunabula, so rare I don't have a picture of it, <laughs> but you have to believe me, it's in the collection, is Jean Meschino's L'Elinat de Prince, um, published in Paris by Philippe Picochet for Simon Voss in 1499, which, according to the Incunabula short title catalogue, is one of four known copies worldwide, and ours is the only one in the Western Hemisphere. There is a rare example of an early 18th century Venetian ducal commission, or presentation copy of a contract given to a Venetian nobleman elected to oversee the Republic's territories with the doge's seal still attached to the repousse and chase silver binding. And I'm showing you the upper and lower covers of the same book and the obverse and reverse of the seal. We have a copy of Greek poetry printed by Jerome Comelan in 1598 in Heidelberg from the library of the English Renaissance dramatist Ben Johnson. The title page bears his autograph, Sum Ben Johnson, and his motto, there is a gilt-tooled leather binding from Tiffany of New York with Gothic revival silver and enamel decorations and clasps engraved, the two are one. It was designed by the American novelist Frances Marion Crawford as a gift for Gardner 
to enclose his and her copies of the Divine Comedy with their pages literally interleaved. Crawford and Gardner were rumoured to have had an affair, which, like Dante's Paolo and Francesca, began while reading together. Mm-hmm. Crawford inscribed his gift with a verse from Paradiso 36, bound with love in one volume, all that is scattered throughout the universe. And finally, we have ten volumes of the Kombucha's Japanese fairy tale series of woodblock, woodblock illustration translations of Japanese fables, published by Takeshiro Hasegawa in Tokyo in the 1880s for a Western market. In 1906, Gardner published a choice of books from her library, which was the first catalogue of a discrete collection within the museum. It lists manuscripts and printed books of different age and, of, and origin in alphabetical order with some provenance details and has on its title page a fountain design taken from a woodcut in the aforementioned Hypnoautomatica Polyphili, which was one of the first rare books that Gardner purchased in 1886. Gardner compiled the catalogue herself, despite the strong recommendation of Daniel Updike that she hire an editor. Updike, whose Merrimount Press in Boston was known for its excellence in typography and design, refused to allow his imprint to appear in the book because there were so many errors in the text. <laughs> Perhaps this is why Gardner wrote rather defensively to her art advisor, Bernard Berenson, a year after the catalogue's publication. It is my choice of books, a choice for many reasons, some in sentiment, others for merit. In the library of Berenson's former home, Villa Itati near Florence, is a copy of the catalogue which Gardner sent him, replete with his corrections. In 1922, um, so 1922 saw the publication of a catalogue of Gardner's manuscripts and fine bindings, a more professional and scholarly work with descriptions of collation, content, decoration, some attributions and provenance. It was compiled by Gardner and Morris Carter, a librarian by training who served as the museum's first director. In 1931, the French bibliographer Simon de Ricci visited the museum to examine the manuscripts for his pioneering census of medieval and renaissance manuscripts in the United States and Canada. Thanks to de Ricci's census, and in more recent times to Google Books, <laughs> and volumes from her collection have received the attention of scholars such as Philip Hofer and David Starkey. Gardner's books have also been exhibited both at the museum in shows such as From Babes in the Woods to Dr. Doolittle, a collection of two centuries of children's books in 1988, and on loan to other institutions, including the Marciana Library in Venice, and last year to New York's um, Museum of Biblical Art for the exhibition Passion in Venice, Crivelli to Tintoretto in Veronese, and we lent this book I'm showing you here. The tradition of lending books originated with Gardner herself, who lent some 100 manuscripts and rare books to Boston Public Library in 1897, probably thanks to her close relationship with its chief librarian, Theodore F. Dwight. Gardner remembered Boston Public Library in her will with a bequest of $5,000. There are a number of rare books currently on display um, alongside contemporary art at the, at the Gardner Museum in an exhibition called Points of View, 20 Years of Artists in Residence at the Gardner. 
The residency programme was established to perpetuate the legacy of the museum as a public resource for scholarship and creativity in the tradition of Isabella Stewart Gardner's salon. Like John Singer Sargent, whom Gardner invited to use the Gothic room as a studio in 1903, contemporary artists come to live and work in the museum and have privileged access to the collection, archives and building with support from staff. Many artists have been intrigued by the rare books collection, so I have had the pleasure of working with international artists such as um, Jean-Michel Otoniel, Hamra Bas, and Cesare Pietrusti. Now call me biased, but my favourite residency piece created in response to the museum's rare books collection is by the British collaborative artists Heather Ackroyd and Dan Harvey. They explore the theme of growth, transformation and decay through a variety of media, including sculpture, photography, architecture and landscape design. They are particularly renowned for their use of grass as a photographic medium. In 2001, they created the Grass Canvas script, which reproduces an image from the Gardner's 1487 Brescia Dante. Ackroyd and Harvey chose an excerpt from Landino's commentary on Canto IV of the Inferno, in which Dante and Virgil enter limbo and observe from a green meadow the souls of virtuous pagans. Landino's interpretation of the meadow which is always green and without cultivation produces its own fruit, as an allegory of fame had a particular resonance for the artist. So, the most recent chapter in the history of the Garden Museum's rare book collection has been my appointment in 2010 as the museum's first Andrew W. Mellon postdoctoral fellow, largely on the strength of my proposal to research Isabella's um, unknown book collection. Working with a little-studied, fine and varied collection is a privilege and has been immensely fruitful. In a short amount of time, I've been able to make a number of discoveries which I've shared with the public through lectures and gallery talks, an exhibition, a forthcoming article and press interviews, amongst others, Nick Basbane's column, Gently Mad in Fine Books and Collections. I'm proud to say that since my arrival, we've noticed an increase in the number of book-related inquiries and members citing the book programme as their motive for joining the museum. So the word is getting out there that the gardener has great books. I started off with a cheekily named Under the Covers at After Hours, a series of gallery talks and small displays of rare books held at our monthly late-night opening aimed at the under-40s crowd. Without any prior advertisement, 70 people attended the first talk, called From the Sistine Chapel to Fenway Court, Leaves from a Missal of Pope Clement VII, in which I narrated a tale of 16th century Medici patronage, 18th century Napoleonic looting, and 19th century Bostonian collecting. The next talk, a most, a most serene collection, Isabella Stuart Gardner's Books of the Republic of Venice, described the role of the Venetian nobility in governing the most serene Republic of Venice through um, using four 16th to 18th century manuscripts of the Venetian nobility. I later developed this into a, a small exhibition called Illuminating the Serenissima, Books of the Republic of Venice, which showed the evolution over three centuries of Venetian book decoration through seven of the Gardner's finest ducal commissions. There's also an online version of the show on the museum's website. 
The Gothic Room Choir Book and Neapolitan Treasure Rediscovered, presented open for public viewing for the first time in the museum's history, the large leather-bound choir book found beneath Sargent's portrait of Mrs. Gardner in the Gothic Room. The Painter's Bible, illustrated editions of Ovid's Metamorphoses, discussed the influence of illustrated editions of the poem on the visual arts during the 16th and 17th centuries. Opening the books to the tale of the rape of Europa, I invited visitors to compare printed depictions of the myth to Titian's famous painting of the same room, same subjects in the Titian room. And finally, the most popular one in the series, actually, Face of Genius, Portraits of Dante in Isabella Stewart Gardner's Copies of the Divine Comedy examine the meaning of changes in the depiction of the poet's physiognomy from the Middle Ages to the present day, using illustrated books, a death mask, and images of a recent, recent facial reconstruction created with virtual modelling technology. So I conclude this lecture by sharing with you two recent discoveries which I'll be publishing um, later on this year in an Italian art history journal dedicated to illuminated manuscripts. Leaves of a Missal from Clement VII. Um, in the museum's tapestry room, on a table beside two religious objects, is displayed open a manuscript which Carter and Derici recognise as coming from a Missal of Clement VII. The volume consists of just five pages containing the text of the Canon of the Mass, written in a round liturgical Gothic script. It is decorated with one historiated initial of Pope Clement VII celebrating Mass in the Sistine Chapel. A foliate border piece with the Medici papal arms and Clement VII's devices and initials with strewn trompe l'oeil, flora, fauna and gems casting shadows on their liquid gold ground. Thanks to advances in, um, sorry, thanks to advances in scholarship on the Pontifical Scriptorium, I instantly identified the Flemish-style illumination with the work of Matteo de Milano, who in the second, second decade of the 16th century illuminated manuscripts for members of the papal court, including Cardinal Giulio de' Medici, who became Clement VII. The Cardinal Missal, however, is not by the Lombard master's hand, but attributable to a skillful collaborator and imitator called the Master of the Missal of Cardinal Bernardino di Carvajal. I dated the leaves to the early years of Clement VII's papacy between his election in 1523 and 1527 because in the historiated initial the Pope is depicted as clean-shaven as in his magnificent portrait by Sebastiano del Piombo of 1526. During the sack of Rome in 1527 while imprisoned in Castel Sant'Angelo Clement grew a beard and wore it long thereafter as can be seen in the drawing of Clement VII meeting Charles V in Bologna, also by Del Piombo, which is dated to the 1530s. Another fascinating detail of the Garden of Missal's historiated initial is the tiny view of the interior of the Sistine Chapel, including its original altar wall fresco of the Assumption of the Virgin with Pope Sixtus IV by Perugino which was destroyed to make way for Michelangelo's last judgment. The gardener initial shows a detail of the left side of the altarpiece with the heads, this area here, with their, um, 
At the heads of two apostles, a full-length figure of St. Peter with his arm extended to place a key on the de la Rovere Pope's shoulder, some landscape, sky and part of the Virgin's blue robe and mandola. The cardinal leaves can be traced to a parent manuscript described in three inventories of manuscripts in the Sistine Sacristy, compiled in 1547, 1714 and 1728, which describe its original Medicean binding, Vatican Pressmark A1314, and contents of the book. Since the parent missal was in the sacristy in 1728, it was probably removed from the Sistine Chapel 70 years later during the French occupation of Rome, when many manuscripts were taken away from the Vatican. A number of volumes were rescued by two Spanish cardinals and are now in Spain. Others were mutilated for their illuminations, which are sold as small paintings at Christie's in London in the 1820s. My assignment of the, card- of the Cardinal Missal leaves to the Master of, um, of the Missal of um, Cardinal Bernardino de Carvajal around 1523-27, to 27, an identification of them with former Sistine Sacristy Manuscript A1314 as to the corpus of both the Illuminator and the dispersed Pontifical Manuscripts. Gardner owned two paintings and a drawing by Raphael, so I think she would have been particularly thrilled um, to know that a work of art in her collection has a rare depiction of the famous Love's work by Perugina. In the Gothic room, beneath Sargent's iconic portrait of Gardner, lies a leather-bound volume that is instantly recognisable by its large format as a choir book. Measuring 640 by 440 millimetres with 154 vellum leaves, it took three conservators and a museum preparator to lift it so that I could examine the volume. Carter identified it as an antiphonary sanctuary from the Feast of St Andrew to the Feast of the Holy Martyrs John and Paul, and noted intriguingly that it was said to have been recovered from a shipwreck in the Bay of Naples and has suffered the action of water. The book's coppered leaves and pigment transfers from the illuminated frontispiece seem to confirm water damage. The manuscript was given to Gardner by her brother-in-law, George Augustus Gardner. However, it is neither clear when or where he acquired it, nor the year he gave it to the collector. Carson de Ricci believed the Gardner antiphonary to be of the 18th century in Spanish because of an inscription inside it. But in 1970, um, Dennis Crowley and Roland van Hadley realised that the true colophon was to be found on folio 152 verso, though they had difficulty transcribing it. Noting that the coat of arms of the Order of Preachers appears um, both at the foot of the illuminated um, frontispiece and as a metal ornament on the lower cover of the binding, they concluded that it had belonged to a Dominican monastery. And finally, Crowley and Hadley reattributed it, its decorative style to the Italian Baroque of the mid-17th century. So I identified the Gardner and Tiffany scribe Rufra Geronimo from Nola, a town of the, to the northeast of Naples. He also, he also copied an Antiphony Gradual, which he signed and dated 1614. This book and a sort of hymnal, datable to the 1630s, were written for and still belong to the Dominican convent of the Madonna del Arco, 
which is situated at Sant Anastasia, a town at the foot of Mount Vesuvius, between Naples and Nola. The Madonna del Arco is a miraculous image of the Virgin and Child, which, having began life as a humble roadside shrine, has been a centre for Marian devotion from the mid-15th century to the present day. In the 1590s, care of its sanctuary was granted to the Dominicans of San Severo Maggiore in Naples, who built a new church and convent at the pilgrimage site. The three volumes in Boston and Santa Nestia belong to a set of choir books, which were commissioned by the Dominicans for use in their new church. The Gardner Antiphonary and the volume in Santa Nestia and Anastasia appear to be illuminated by the same hand. They have similar and in some cases identical figures and share the same decorative scheme for the openings of major feast days. Further proof of the Gardner Antiphonary's provenance is its binding, which is made of brown leather on wooden boards, embellished with the metalwork's centrepiece of the Virgin and Child, now recognisable as the Madonna del Arco, as does the volume in Santa Anastasia. The binding's metalwork figure of the Virgin and Child is the same as that used for a medal commemorating the laying of the Dominican Church's foundation stone in 1593. And the plot thickens. In 2009, two centuries after Napoleon's suppression of Santa Maria dell'Arco and the dispersal of her property, eight volumes from the convent's choir book resurfaced for sale at Christie's in London. The books are signed and dated from 1601 to 1603 by Fra um, Giovanni Ballo of Naples and from 1607 to 1615 by the scribe of the garden Antiphony, Fra Giolo some of the illuminations are signed by Giovanni Battista Rosa, a leading figure in Neapolitan late mannerist illumination, and so it is likely that the artists from his, um, artists from his workshop were, were responsible for the decoration of the set of choir books. Um, but before the volumes reached the sale room, they were purchased by the Convento di Santa Maria dell'Arco and returned to Santa Anastasia. The manuscripts were consigned to auction by the Hispanic Society of America in New York. Unfortunately, the Society has no precise record of when the choir books entered their collection. That nine volumes of the Santa Maria del Arco set ended up in the east coast of America by the turn of the 20th century and were thought to be Spanish by their American owners leads one to ask whether they were purchased from the same source in the United States. Isabella Stuart Gardner knew Archer Milton Huntington, the founder of the Hispanic Society of America. However, their correspondence is silent on the matter of the choir books. Despite the mystery of the 19th century provenance of the Santa Maria del Arco manuscripts that reached America, my identification of the Gardner Antiphony as part of the set provides new material for the study of Giovanni Battista Rosa's workshop and Neapolitan Baroque illumination. And finally, let us recall that Gardner's portrait by Sargent was severely criticised in 1888 for her depiction as a Byzantine Madonna, or American Idol, as the press would have it, and was removed from public view until after her death. I think that Gardner, who is quoted as saying, don't spoil a good story by telling the truth, would nonetheless have been delighted to discover that at her feet lays an object of homage to a real icon. Thank you. Thank you.